All right, ladies and gents, let's launch, let's do this. We are ready to go. Does anyone need any more booklets? Not that we have any left, but... Uh, well, well, there's that. All right, well, let me do this. Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we will, we will dive right in, okay? All right, everyone, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. Let's ask for help as we do theology together as, as a church. This is a sweet time to gather. Thanks for being here. Um, we are tired and wearied, but I trust we'll be energized by the things we see from, from God's word. All right, let's pray. Oh Lord, we marvel at the plan of salvation and all that you have done to save sinners from ruin and despair, the great lengths to which you have gone to rescue sinners like us. And Lord, we, we know, um, although it, it staggers our minds to consider it, we know, oh Lord, that this plan to save us began all the way back in eternity past when the only thing in existence was you. And we marvel at that, Lord, and, and, and we we clamor and long and try to dig deep for something in ourselves that that act that that served as a a reason a cause for why you should choose us and send Christ to save us but but the scriptures tell us that we we come up empty we had nothing to contribute except for sin and guilt and and shame and wrath and judgment that's the only thing we had to contribute were the sins that needed to be forgiven And so, Lord, as we talk about your grace, specifically sovereign grace that intervened in our lives, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. I pray that you would cause us to have a sense of wonder at the work that you have done in our hearts to bring us to yourself, the the great miracle of awakening that had to be done to uh, cause us to repent and believe in Christ in the first place. And Lord, I pray that the result of this, the effects of this, O oh Lord, would be the appropriate humility, the appropriate excitement, the appropriate affection, the appropriate zeal uh, in our evangelism that, that this doctrine that we're going to discuss tonight should produce. So Lord, what we want to be is a people who not only think biblically, but who live biblically. So Lord, empower us to do, say, do so. May your word work mightily, undeniably, conspicuously, and uh, uh, in a, a lasting way in our lives. We thank you so much for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so uh, before I begin, uh, there's my number there. So as I uh, talk and as I say things, things you want to ask questions about, please feel free to do so. And uh, we'll, we'll have some time at the end for questions. But you know that this summer we've been going through a series on the doctrines of grace. There are five doctrines of grace. This will turn out to be a seven-part series. But uh, again, um, what the doctrines of grace are, we say this every time, the doctrines of grace are essentially a summary of God's sovereign grace in salvation, right? That, that, that's what this is. Uh, to put it another way, the doctrines of grace are describing the great lengths to which God had to go to save us from eternal woe and despair, these are, these are the gracious acts of God of salvation in Christ to bring us to himself. Uh, one of the ways I like to put it is um, these doctrines of grace, these aren't just a few cherry-picked doctrines. What this is, this is, this is essentially the, the entire story of Christianity. What this is, is the story of God's pursuit of our highest joy at the cost of his son's life to replace our blindness with spiritual sight and to replace our hunger for spiritual poison to change us to have an appetite for the beauty of God's perfections. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the doctrines of grace. And what are the doctrines of grace? We do this every time, but, but I want us to have this so cemented into our souls here. What are the doctrines of grace? We don't have to follow the order. What are the doctrines? Total depravity. And Ellie, what is total depravity? Yeah, right, starting out with nothing, born spiritually dead, right? Unable, unwilling to respond. Um, and, uh, that, well, the only way we can respond to God without God's sovereign intervention is unbelief, right? So we are born spiritually dead. Okay, very good. Uh, another one? 
doctrine, I mean? Unconditional. Unconditional election. Very good. And someone tell me, what is unconditional election? What do we mean by that? Absolutely, yeah. So definitely uh, not by us because, you know, election refers to a choice, right? And that choice was made not only before we were born, but when? In eternity past. Before time began. So, and, and then you, you hit right. It's not because of us. That's the unconditional part where it's like there was nothing in us. There were no conditions that had to be met. There was no standards. Okay, well, if you're this good, then you'll be chosen. And in fact, what we'll discuss as we review the points later, it's not even as if God chose us based on the faith that he knew that we would exercise. It wasn't even that. No conditions. It was God's sovereign, unilateral, one-sided choice. He chose us for salvation in Christ. Christ. Okay, good. What's another one? Particular atonement. Erica, you want to take a shot at uh, particular atonement? Oh, good. Excellent. Yeah, well said. A specific sacrifice for specific people. And who are the specific people? The elect, absolutely. So in, in talking about particular atonement is we're saying that the death of Christ was not that he died for everybody but for nobody in particular, but that his death was designed in particular for the very people that the Father chose for salvation, right? Yeah, very good. Uh, okay, another one. Perseverance of the saints. Yeah, Jaime, what is perseverance of the saints? Yeah, saints. There we go. Uh, continuity of salvation. Okay, good, good. Uh, anyone else want to elaborate? Add to that. Perseverance of the saints. Very good, yeah. So, so there is that continuity aspect where we continue in the faith. The question is how? How do we get there? Because there is a, a sovereign work of God in the soul of the, the saved sinner that uh, enables us, empowers us to persevere to the end, right? Good, and we'll discuss that next time. Um, okay, and then what's the last? Irresistible grace. Okay, and then what is, anyone, irresistible? Am I getting this right? It's so much harder to, to write up here on, on the board. Okay, what is irresistible grace? And this is actually the one we're going to cover tonight, so a sneak preview. What is irresistible grace? Anyone want to take a crack at that? Very good. Excellent. Yeah, that there's this drawing work of God. So if this takes place in eternity past, and that took place in, in history, then uh, this took place in real time in the moment that we got saved, right? So yesterday, I didn't believe. Today, I do believe. What happened that, that enabled me to repent and believe? That happened. Now, what does that mean? We'll get there. But those are... Those are the doctrines of grace. So very good. And then, um, the uh, uh, again, the talking about uh, election. So I started with that, and and again, what we're saying there is that election means that before time, God sovereignly singled out and selected a particular number of souls to be saved to whom he gave to his son, for whom his son would die and purchase with his blood. Okay, that's, that's unconditional election. So, you know, we see this in texts like Ephesians 1, uh, 4, and 5, just as he chose us, just as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons uh, through Jesus Christ to himself. So there's unconditional election. So much more could and should be said. And then total depravity, we covered after that. Uh, total depravity means that as a result of original sin, and, and what is original sin? When was original sin? 
in the garden, right? So as a result of original sin, it means that every person, again, this is, this is weighty stuff here, every person is born with every aspect of who they are completely infected and polluted by sin to the degree that they are only controlled entirely by sin all the time and on their own. It is impossible to break free from sin's control. All one sentence. You're welcome. Okay? So, but that's, that's what we're saying, that, that the nature of what sin is has such an effect that, that before Christ's sovereign intervention, we were only controlled entirely by sin all the time. And on our own, it was impossible to break free from sin's control. That doesn't mean people can't be nice. That, mean, that doesn't mean people can't be moral. That doesn't mean that, that people can't be kind. That doesn't mean that people can't do even very heroic things. It just means that, um, that uh, the, the, the human heart is enslaved and chained to sin. And so, um, you know, any number of texts describe this. One of, one of the ones that I, I particularly love to point out is Romans 3, 10 through 18, which goes through this whole, uh, litany of um, you know effects of sin um, on the human heart, and then uh, last time, a couple weeks ago, we talked about particular atonement, and, and you guys nailed it. It's that uh, the death of Christ was intended to purchase and pay for the salvation of the elect in particular. Again, what we argued is that the the death of Christ, its intention was not merely to make men savable, but it was actually designed to purchase the salvation of everyone whom the Father had chosen. So the Father chose some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and the scriptures, I believe, make clear that Christ purchased those same ones from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And we see these texts and, and we read them and we, we kind of blow by them without thinking, but think of you know, our favorite you know, humility text about Christ. You know, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for who? For many. Not all, for many. Right? So, so the ransom death, the redeeming death that he died was intended for a particular group of people. I think especially of Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, O lamb, to open the book and break its seals for you were slain and you purchased with your blood for God some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and made them a kingdom and priest to our God. So Christ, Christ didn't purchase every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He purchased some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And what, what we discussed last time is that this changes nothing about the responsibility to evangelize. It changes nothing about the, the, the offer of salvation because, again, what we, what we can say is uh, with, with full honesty is that anyone who is willing to repent and believe in Christ can have access to everything for which he purchased. So, in fact, I believe that particular atonement strengthens, even strengthens our evangelism. Uh, so that's all a quick review, which brings us to irresistible grace. Uh, I don't have a, 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 an eraser, but that's okay. We'll, we'll figure something out here. Irresistible grace. Now, I want to begin with some questions. Um, uh, if you belong to Christ here tonight, um, have you ever considered how it is that you got saved? Think about your conversion, how it is that you got saved. Because in, in reality, that's a simple question, right? But... Um, in another sense, that is a question of, of oceanic significance that cannot be touched by mere human reason. Because in answer to the question, how did you get saved, um, you know, the, the, the answer is, well, um, well, I, I heard the gospel, then I believed. I heard the gospel proclaimed, I believed in Christ, and that was it. There's no rocket science to untangle. Don't over-engineer this thing, Jared. And yet, was it, was, that, was it really so simple? Because, here's the question, how did you come to believe? Was that faith, belief, ultimately from you? In other words, was that ultimately your own idea, or were there other powers or influences at work 
in your salvation? Was there something else or rather someone else that was at work that enabled you and empowered you to believe? Because what if, just, just go with me on this, I, I've, I've kind of walked through this with you before, what if the very faith you placed in Christ, although it was real and it was legitimate and it was conscious and you really did it, what if even that faith was a gift given to you? What if even the very conscious faith you placed in Christ was a result and a byproduct of a miracle that God had to perform in your soul or you would have never believed and been saved? What if that were the case? Because guess what? That is true. That's exactly what the Bible describes. And, and, and that name of that transaction is what we're talking about when we talk about irresistible grace. Um, but but before, we devo- before we define irresistible grace, uh, let's, let's, let's go back again to total depravity and describe why it is that irresistible grace was so necessary. So I want you to take a, a tour, a terrifying tour through the tragic tunnel of total depravity. What do you think of that? Okay, so a tour of total depravity and, and think about the condition, the, the condition of our souls before Christ rescued us. This may or may not be in your notes. I don't know. Section two, why total depravity demands irresistible grace. That's where we are. Before Christ rescued us, the, the New Testament makes really clear that we did not love, but we hated God. On our own, by ourselves, apart from God's intervention, we did not love, we hated God. Colossians 1.21 tells us that we had enmity, we had hostility towards God. That's who we were. Even if we didn't feel like we had ill feelings toward God, we did. The Bible says, Romans 3.11, we did not want God. It goes on to say, we did not seek God. There is no one who seeks for God, not even one. We didn't fear God, Romans 3.18. There was no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, the John, or Christ makes clear in John 6.44 that, that, that we could not come to God on our own by ourselves, even if we wanted to and we did not want to. We, we could not come to God at, at all. We, we could not be authentically righteous or meet God's demands. Again, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. We could do some, some righteous-ish things, but we couldn't meet God's demands. Uh, Romans 8, 7 says that we could not respond to God in a positive way. Listen to what it says, Romans 8, 7. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Get this, for it is not even able to do so. That's who we were before Christ rescued us, unable and unwilling to subject ourselves to the law of God. And, and this is a real, I mean, this really takes the taco here. The New Testament makes clear that we were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to the evil one. I didn't think I was. I didn't think so. But you see, our conception is of how Satan works. It's too influenced by Hollywood. It, the, the, that how he operates is way more subtle than most people think. We think of people, you know, with green vomit and spinning heads and, you know, gross, you know, uh, movies about possession from the 70s. And, and that's, not, that's not how he operates. Way more subtle. We were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to sin. Blinded by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We were capable only of sin. Everything we did was sin. Everything we did was so corrupted by sin that it was deserving of punishment before God. Unbelievable. I mean, I'm building the case here because I want you to see that that's why this is so necessary. This transaction of irresistible grace is so necessary. I'll, I'll finish with these. First Corinthians 1.18, look what it says. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, you know, when, you, when, when you're talking with someone and you share the gospel with them, and they're just like, oh, come on, really? And, and they just, they're just astonished that you believe what you do, or they just flat out reject it. Maybe they don't mock you for it, but they're like, mm, even passively reject it, and, and, and they don't come to faith. 
Why is that happening? Why are they rejecting it? Why can't they connect the dots? Why aren't they seeing what you're seeing? Why can't they come alongside you and go, you're totally right. The gospel makes sense. What have I been missing? This is exactly what I needed. Why don't they do that? Because man in his natural state in which he was born, the gospel is foolishness to him. And it was foolishness to us before God awakened us. And then 1 Corinthians 2.14, listen to this. But the natural man, referring to an unsaved, unregenerate person, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That is who we were. That is everyone apart from God's sovereign intervention in their lives. The, the things of the spirit, the things of the spirit of God are foolishness. Like, are you kidding me? You believe this? I mean, have you ever had anyone respond to you like that? You're, you're sharing with them what you believe and there's like, okay. And you kind of feel insulted and like, oh man, I feel ashamed. Don't, don't feel ashamed. What you're seeing is 1 Corinthians 2.14. What you're seeing is the results of total depravity. And, and apart from God's intervention, we were all headed to the lake of fire forever. That's, that's where we were. So I build the case of our total depravity. I remind us again of that so we can see how necessary this was for any of us to get saved. I have a quote here by John Piper. Maybe you can see it. Uh, It says, if the doctrine of total depravity as we have unfolded it is true, there can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. So that's where we're going next. Part three, what is irresistible grace? What is irresistible grace? Um, Oh, thanks for the things to wipe the board here. You guys cool if I erase this? Well, I got to do it anyway, so... Okay, so irresistible grace. Um, And how many of you, no shame if you haven't, how many of you had heard of of irresistible grace before you came here? You'd heard of it, okay. So yeah, most most everyone had heard of irresistible grace. Here's what it is. It sounds like a a big word, and and Cy and I were talking a little bit. There's some of these terms that they're prone to misunderstanding, and I think this one can easily be prone to misunderstanding. But but here's what we mean by irresistible grace, and I'm going to unpack this. Irresistible grace is a theological term to describe and summarize uh, what God has to do in the moment to awaken a blind sinner from spiritual death. That's what it is. It it summarizes what God had to do in the moment to awaken a blind sinner from spiritual death. So irresistible grace, it's not a substance, it's it's not a commodity. What it is, it's a transaction. It's a moment. It's a, it's a series of events, usually unseen by us, that God does in the heart to awaken uh, sinners from spiritual death and to overcome our blindness and all of our hard-hearted resistance. Okay, is, is that making sense? And again, I'm going to unpack this in a minute. And now, uh, does irresistible grace mean that no one resists God? Well, of course not. People resist God all the time. So, so no, one is, no one is claiming that. Nor does it have any sort of implications that people's responsibility is minimized or, or lessened. There's nothing like that. Uh, nor does irresistible grace. Here's a, well, let me ask you this. Those of you who have heard of irresistible grace, what are some of the accusations leveled against this doctrine? People say, well, if irresistible grace is true, then that means what? Have you heard any of the objections that people have? Eliminates choice. It, it eliminates choice. Absolutely. Evgeny, what are you going to say? Um, oftentimes they'll say that um, uh, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, right. It, which, is, which is a favorite card to play. Well, just, you just do whatever. It's like, who believes that? No one believes that. Non-Christians believe that. We, we don't. Um, yeah, and, and so it, it eliminates choice. You know, so, uh, another accusation is that people say that, well, irresistible grace means that people are forced, they're coerced against their will, they're dragged kicking and screaming, they don't want to get saved, but they have to, and it's like, that's not the picture. 
not the picture at all. What has happened to free will? Yeah, right. That somehow it violates our personal responsibility or, or our accountability or what some people will call free will. It violates that, and, and, and none of that is, is true. But rather, what we mean when we describe irresistible grace is that we are describing, get this, the miraculous, instantaneous, supernatural work of God in the soul when he overcomes all, all rebellion and resistance and brings us to faith in Christ. In fact, let me, let me put it this way. Um, irresistible grace uh, is a summary way to describe two things that God does. You ready? Now, I'm probably jumping ahead in my notes here. But all right, here's irresistible grace here. And irresistible grace is made up of two things that God does. Here they are. Regeneration. And over here, the effectual call. That word is effectual. Sorry for the terrible handwriting. That is shameful. Regeneration and effectual call. Okay, so in other words, regeneration plus effectual call equals irresistible grace. So when we talk about irresistible grace, what are we referring to? We are referring to the work of God in regeneration, and we are referring to the work of God in the effectual call. Does that make sense? This plus this equals this. Irresistible grace is the work of God that he had to do in the moment to overcome all hard-hearted resistance and open our eyes and awaken our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ and specifically, it's regeneration and the effectual call. That's what that is. Any questions so far about that? Now, Obviously, we need to define and unfold regeneration. We need to define and unfold what the effectual call is. But essentially, when, when theologians or books or anyone describes irresistible grace, these two acts of God in the moment, in real time, which all happened to you, maybe even imperceptible to you at the time, these are the things that God did to awaken you, open your blind eyes, awaken your dead heart, and bring you to faith in Christ. Those are the things that he did. That's irresistible grace. You with me so far? Okay. Now let's let's do this. Let's um, let's unfold the doctrine of regeneration. And 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 this this doctrine here. And we may or may not. I'll probably just summarize this. We'll spend most of our time on regeneration. This doctrine here is an absolute deal breaker. This this is so hope giving and so encouraging and so practical. I mean, this has so many ramifications for our own pride and for evangelism and for parenting. I'm just, I'm thrilled about the doctrine of regeneration. But let me ask you this. As we unfold regeneration, um, I want you to think about, I'm going to write something on the board here. I want you to think about uh, what are the synonyms the Bible uses for regeneration? So let's take Titus 3.5 as a starting place. I don't know where I am on my notes, so do your best. All right, Titus 3.5. 3.5. Um, says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So God saved us how? Through the washing of regeneration. So that word regeneration... is the Greek word palingenesia, which that means again, and this means born. <laughs> so it's a really long way to say born again, palingenesia, born again. So we've got this as a starting point. Okay, the, the scriptures describe uh, the born again and, and um, regeneration. So we've got this, what are the synonyms the New Testament uses to describe regeneration. And if you can remember where they are in the Bible, uh, tell me that too. Okay, what are the synonyms the, the Bible uses for regeneration? 
How else is this described? What are its other aliases? Rebirth. Rebirth, yeah, so, so new birth. You have, a, you have any text you can think of, Charles? That's right, we'll look at those. But you're right, new birth. You're talking to Nicodemus? Yeah, what does he say? What term does Christ use? Born again, yeah. So we got it here, but we'll, we'll put it here anyway. And uh, he also says, born uh, by water and by spirit, which is very interesting because when he says that, we're scratching our heads going, what does he mean? Is he referring to baptism? What is he referring to? And Nicodemus understood exactly what he was referring to. He's referring to something in the Old Testament. We'll look at that. Okay, so new birth, born again. New life. New life, yeah, absolutely. How about... uh, I'll put it this way if I can, Steve. Made alive. Okay, what else? Don't peek at the notes either. I think, I think all my synonyms are in the notes too. A new creation. Excellent. That's exactly what it is. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Excellent. Oh yeah, John 3. That's a 3, sorry. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Okay. Other synonyms? Okay, no problem. So let's, let's walk through a few of these. This, this is very interesting. So we'll start off in, in John 3. John 3, verse 3, and then verse 5, Christ tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. And Nicodemus kind of wigs out, doesn't he? He kind of, he kind of, you know, I, I preached on this a while back, but you, you know, people, you know, and, and Nicodemus' response was, "Well, when Christ tells him that he needs to be born again, what was Nicodemus' response? What did he say?" How can anybody go back and be born again from the womb? Yeah, yeah, and and so many people think that he that he literally meant what? Okay, Nicodemus is probably a dude in his 60s. Okay, his mom's not even in existence. Okay, there's no way that that's what Nicodemus understood, right? There's, there's no way. Um, and, and what Nicodemus understood was, wait, you're telling me I got to start over? Wait, you're telling me that, I, that everything I have done it, it, to merit salvation is worthless? You're telling me that I have to uh, uh, go back and start all over again? I, I'm sorry, that I cannot do. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not open to that. Um, and, and I think what he understood was he, his old self has to be slain and he has to be born again as a new person. I think that's what he understood. I know that's what he understood because there are enough Old Testament references to regeneration for, for me to, to have that warrant. Uh, so, so there's that. We have, we have born again, John chapter 3. And then uh, Ezekiel 36. Do you, do you remember what Ezekiel 36 describes? The, the transaction specifically in verses 25 through 27, how does it describe the miracle of regeneration? What language does it use? It's very graphic. A new, heart. a new heart, right? Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be cleansed from all of your idols and from all of your filthiness. I will cleanse you and I will take out of you a heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The, the miracle of regeneration is described by Yahweh in the book of Ezekiel as a, as a spiritual heart transplant. I'm going to remove the heart of, the heart of what? Stone. Meaning what? What does that say about our hearts? Dead, Dead right? Immo- immovable, um, uh, unresponsive, cold, hardened, rejecting the truth, unpliable, and it needs to be replaced with a what? A heart of flesh, meaning what? Alive. Alive. Living, breathing, able to respond. Able to respond. If we have a heart of stone, we cannot respond. If we have a heart of flesh, we do respond. So um, one of the um, pictures is a new heart. Okay? What is the picture that Moses uses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6? Do you remember that text? 
What's the picture they use? It's, it's also pretty graphic. It's kind of a cringy, like, oof. Circumcised heart. A circumcised heart. That's kind of gross. You shouldn't, like, you shouldn't use that word in public, right? Um, and and what, what is the significance of that picture? What's circumcision of the heart? What, what does that mean? What's he referring to? To cut away from your sinful self. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's some sort of, because if you remember what the text says, and the Lord shall circumcise your heart so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Meaning, if your heart is not circumcised, you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So really what it is, he's talking about surgery on the human soul. Surgery that God has to perform for you to be able to love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So here's another picture. Circumcision. Did I get that right? I love that that's on the board. I love it. Okay. Um, Now tell me this. Tell me this. I I forgot to mention this here. uh, And also, the letter of 1 John uh, makes three or four, maybe even five references, maybe more quite a few references, lots of references to being born of God. So he's referring to the same thing. What's the significance of the birth being born language? Why that picture to capture what regeneration is? Why that? What's the significance? What are the implications of that language? It's a new life. It's a new life. Transformation. Transformation. Nothing that you can do can make it happen. Nothing that you can do can make it happen. What were you going to say? Basically the same thing. It's passive. It's the actions performed upon you. Right, right. How many of you willed yourselves to come into your mother's womb? How many of you made that happen? I will myself to exist in Carol Gilcher's womb. I did that. And, you know, I never, I, we didn't do that. That's pretty kind of gross. Um, uh, so, um, so the idea is we were completely passive. Non-life does not will itself to become life. That's the significance of the picture. You, which, means, which means you had about as much to do with your new birth as you did with your physical birth, which was nothing. nothing. This is incredible, right? The, the, the ramifications of this doctrine are, are absolutely staggering. Um, here's one I really like. Uh, Acts 16, 14. It's, it's in your notes, but I'll, I'll read it. And a certain woman by the name of Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, being a worshiper of God, she was not a Christian, she, she was a God-fearer, was listening of whom the Lord, here it is, opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So the Lord had to open her heart for for her to be able to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's what had to happen to all of us. Dienoixen, the the verb there, to open. That's the same word you use for opening a door. The Lord, Lord had to open her heart for her to even be able to respond. I call that regeneration as the divine defibrillator. And then here's one of my favorites, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is an astonishing text. Uh, Paul is talking about how how, how the gospel works and how people get saved. Listen to what he says. Because the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very interesting text. To, to what, when he says, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. When he's talking about light shining out of darkness, what event is he referring to? Creation. Creation. When God did what? Creation. Yeah. or Let there be light. Okay. Did darkness will itself to become light? No, he had to speak it into existence. Do you see the connection Paul's making? The light that was created in our soul for us to be able to have the the knowledge of Jesus Christ, uh, God had to speak that light into existence in our souls in the same way he had to speak actual light into existence at creation. That's the only way. That's the only reason we believe. 
is because God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of, uh, of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the new life created in your soul was just as miraculous as the creation of light itself. That's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, uh, Vicky mentioned this one, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Regeneration is a new creation. Therefore, as any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Uh, Steve made reference to this one, Ephesians 2, 5, um, uh, when it says, even when we were dead, even then we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Um, James 1.18 describes that, that God brought us forth by the word of truth. That's another birth analogy that he uses. Uh, l- listen to 1 Peter 1.3. Again, I'm, I'm, we remember, you remember where we're at here. I'll just pause here. We're talking about irresistible grace, which is made up of what two acts of God? First, regeneration. regeneration. Second, regeneration. the effectual call. So we're discussing regeneration. Listen to Peter's description of regeneration, 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be or is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Caused us to be born again. It's totally consistent with all this other language, right? Born again, we had nothing to do with that. Uh, made alive, new creation, new heart, circumcision, that has to be performed on you. Um, so, so the pictures, the pictures here of regeneration are staggering. Isn't it absolutely staggering? So new life emerged where it previously did not exist. A new creation was made. Light was created in the soul. A resurrection from the grave took place. Divine reconstructive surgery was done and a spiritual heart transplant was performed. That is the language of regeneration and that is what people are referring to when they describe irresistible grace. This is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. Okay, so so someone defined for me, it doesn't have to be amazing, it doesn't have to be perfect, but... What is then, based on all that, what is regeneration? What are we referring to? If someone asked you, you're in an elevator, that's my favorite analogy, you're in an elevator, and a stranger comes up and says, sir, I am deeply troubled about the state of my soul, and I am wondering about regeneration. Can you tell me, dear sir, what regeneration is? Or, madam, can you tell me what regeneration is? What would you say? Cutting out the, the bad and growing in new Good. Okay, yeah, good, good. So there's a removal of something and the implantation of something new, right? Very good. Yeah, what else? It's the what? death of your self, of the, your depraved nature, mm-hmm. birth of your with Christ. Yes, good. Yeah, yeah, very good. So it, it's the death of the old self and there's new life in Christ. Very good. Made alive in Christ. Okay, what else? the cutting off of being a slave to your sin and instead being made a slave to Christ. Yeah, absolutely, right? So, uh, you know, something, one of the, the effects that happens in regeneration is that we are freed from the slavery of sin and, and nothing changes about our status as a slave. We just change masters, right? And, and Christ becomes our new master. Any other thoughts? Regeneration. What is that? What is the new birth? Renewal. Absolutely. The supernatural act of God. Yes. That does what? That um, gives us the awakening of the light. Yes. To be able to see what? About who? (laughs) (laughs) To see the light of Christ. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, From our our depravity to our position in Him. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So th- those are all real good. Let's pull all those together. Let's pull all together. Here, here it is. Here, here's, this is way too long of a definition, but why would you expect anything less? Regeneration, and I don't know what page it's on. This is on after a definition of regeneration. 19. 19. There you go. Thank you. Regeneration is a sovereign work of God where he instantaneously 
and supernaturally awakens a sinner through the gospel from spiritual death, thus enabling them to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, and it is that which produces in them the very repentance and faith by which they are saved. I'll say that again just so we could hear it. Regeneration is the sovereign work of God where he instantaneously and supernaturally awakens a sinner through the gospel from spiritual death, thus enabling them to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is, and it is also that which produces in them the very repentance and faith by which they are saved. So, so that whole thing of awakening, uh, eye-opening, uh, uh, eyes open from the blindness, heart awakened from spiritual death, that's the issue made alive and thus eyes opened, thus being enabled to see Christ for the treasure that he is and thus see that we have no choice left but to yield our lives to Christ. What were you going to say? And Jared, uh, the apostle Paul, uh, Paul, that light was so bright, he, they just blinded him. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and that, was his, that was his conversion, wasn't it? It was, it was, and it was irresistible. Yeah, he saw Christ for who he was, didn't he? Yeah, so not only was it, so there it was kind of a both and. It was this physical thing that he really saw. At the same time, there was a transaction in his soul where he, had, where he was able to see for the very first time Christ for who he really was. But there was also a liberal blind. There was, that's right. And, and that, was, that was astonishing. That blinded him so he couldn't see with his eyes, but he saw. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that seeing of the heart, that tasting with the spiritual taste buds, that finally seeing, putting the pieces together. Let's put it this way. Picture the time in your lives when, like, you know, the the proverbial light bulb goes off. Or goes off, no, goes on. (laughs) The light bulb goes on. And again, before, not a real interest in Christ wasn't anything that you were particularly interested. Maybe even spiritual things made you uncomfortable like it did for me for so many years as I interacted with Christians as a, non, as a non-Christian. I found them kind of weird and strange and I didn't want them to talk to me about their beliefs and I always wondered, um, you know, I, I just, Christians were very baffling to me and, uh, and then one day, it made sense. Christ is a treasure of infinite worth and value. I am a sinner. My only hope is in Christ. What is the difference between one day and the next where I found Christianity to be really awkward and really hard to believe and really strange and nothing that I wanted anything a part of to the next day, maybe it wasn't you know, exactly 24-hour period, but proverbially the next day going, Christ means everything. What, what was the difference? Regeneration was the difference. Eyes opened, heart awakened. Put it, put it another way. You know, if you had the inability to smell, you would have no appetite for the food that's cooking in the kitchen. But if your nose was supernaturally, not supernaturally, surgically repaired, I guess supernaturally too, uh, surgically repaired, where now you were able to smell food again, that smell, that fragrance of, ah, that is incredible. I want that. That's regeneration. That's what that's, that's, what that's describing. So that's a, that's a definition. And, and notice, l- let me unpack this just for one more minute and then we'll take a break. Notice that I said that regeneration is a sovereign work. It's a sovereign work. What do, what do I mean in the definition? What do I mean that it's a sovereign work? What do I mean by that? Only God can do it. Only God could do it, which the, the figures and analogies and metaphors make that abundantly clear. I mean, how many different ways does the Bible have to put it for us to get the point that only that regeneration is only a work that God could perform? A spiritual heart transplant, light created in the soul, God does that. Okay, and then I said that regeneration is instantaneous, which it's obvious, but what do I mean? What do we mean by that? That regeneration is instantaneous. What's the opposite of instantaneous? Progressive. That it's progressive? That it's, would you say? It's gradual. It's gradual. It's a series of events. Is regeneration a series of events? It, it's not. It's not. It's, it's a single moment in time. Now, 
sometimes what it looks like on our side of things, I think of like Augustine especially. How many of you know the story of, of Augustine's life and, and conversion? It took a long time. It took a really long time for him to wrestle with things. Years and years, in fact. So on our end of things, it looks a little different. But regeneration is a moment in time. Okay? And regeneration is supernatural. In other words, it's not caused by human beings. Uh, regeneration uh, is through the gospel, meaning what? I know that's obvious, but what do we mean when we say that regeneration happens through the gospel? What are we saying? Hear the message. They hear the message, right? It's it, not independent of it. It's not independent of the proclaimed word or the read word or the studied word, right? Exactly right. Um, you know, you think about, in fact, all the, the famous... Uh, um, testimony stories of, of people in church history, you, you read it and they all have this one thing in common. Luther, in his office, in his study, beating on the book of Romans, reading the text, awakened. Same thing with John Calvin. Studying the scriptures, awakened. Even Augustine opens up to Romans chapter 13, verse 14, awakened. It has to be through the truth. And then I said that regeneration enables one to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. It's obvious, but meaning what? What do we mean when we say that regeneration enables one to see Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is? Meaning what? He's our savior. Right, absolutely. The, the, all the dots connect, Right? What else? Other thoughts? What do we mean? We finally see him for who he is, don't we? All of a sudden we see that, that there's all these competitors on the shelf of things that could capture our affections and, and things for which we could live and things for which we could spend our life. But now that we see Christ in the gospel, now that we, our eyes are open to see him, now we sweep all the other competitors off the shelf and grab a hold of him as the treasure of our souls. Evgeny? I guess you could also say that you, you can experience a relationship with them rather than just being a concept or idea. Absolutely. As well. Absolutely. That there, is, that there is an appeal about who he is as a person. Right? You, you want to know him as a person. He's not just a, an object to be studied. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. Well, insightful. And then here's the most controversial part. Regeneration produces the very repentance and faith by which we are saved. And with that, take a break. And we'll talk about that when you come back. All right, take a, take a 10 minute break. Stand up, stretch your legs, grab something to eat, drink, whatever you need. Cake. Oh, there is cake out there made by Mrs. Vaucus and by Sydney Vaucus. I think it would bless her heart if you had some of her cake. <laughs> 